Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn with me to Mark chapter 3? So we're starting the third chapter of Mark this morning, Mark 3. I want to read verses 1 to 12. This week, we're going to find two more miracles uh, where Jesus heals a man of a withered hand uh, in the synagogue. And then also later on this morning, we see Jesus miraculous power over demonic forces once again. And just like last week, We've got the Pharisees there. They're continuing their verbal attacks on Jesus, attempting to trick him uh, to delegitimize his ministry, but they couldn't do it. You know why? They couldn't do it because the uh, living word of God, Jesus Christ, he used the written word of God uh, to answer their evil inquiries, and he did it with a divine authority that just shut them down. And when that happened... We're going to find out also that this is the very first time uh, in Mark's gospel where we see a plan to kill Jesus. That's going to be in this morning's passage. Let's read it. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. It says, And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out and his Hand was restored, whole as the other one. And the Pharisees went forth, and straightway they took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan. And they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did. They came unto him, and he spake unto his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues and unclean spirits. When they saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. All right. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer before we begin studying this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the word that we've heard in song so far this morning, uh, the truth about the power of the cross, uh, the gospel message we heard in O Praise the Name, uh, the reminder of who Jesus Christ is in Daphne's uh, special, that he is the faithful and true one, one we can rely on. And so this morning, as we look into your word, help us to rely on the power of Jesus Christ over this physical world. And whenever 
whenever our minds start to doubt, I pray that we would be called back to the truth in this passage, his power over the spiritual world, something we need to desperately recognize in this chaotic world that we are living in. I pray that this morning would be fuel for our faith and that your Holy Spirit would have free reign, not just to illuminate the truth of your word this morning, but also to convict us of any sin that might be in our life, uh, to help us to to turn, to call us to repentance, that we might be transformed uh, into the image of Jesus Christ. Even right here this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at the power of Jesus Christ over the physical world in verses one to six. Verse one, it's the Sabbath day. That's what we see in verse one. I guess maybe a week or so uh, from where we were last week. It was the Sabbath then too. Jesus had to talk to the Pharisees. Remember the whole cornfield dust up where they were accusing Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath because they were having a little snack and, and Jesus had to set them straight about what was going on. Look, where is Jesus now? Verse one, well, he's back in church, all right? He's at the synagogue, probably that one uh, in Capernaum. That was their home base of ministry operations. And he's possibly there to teach. Um, that's what they would do if a traveling rabbi would come through, a uh, guest speaker, he'd, he'd read a section of scripture, maybe uh, explain it to the congregation. And we find him teaching, but not in a normal way, not like giving a sermon. He's, giving, uh, he's gonna give a lesson, but it's gonna be in a very unusual way. There he finds a man, he's got a withered hand, all right? His hand was withered, maybe a little deformed. Um, he didn't probably atrophy, he didn't have the strength of his other hand. Uh, and this is what uh, Jesus finds there. Now in Luke's gospel, he talks about the same exact account. Luke uh, says it was his right hand. Well, Luke's a doctor, doctors get specific. They wanna give you all the details. All right, so Luke says it's his right hand. And a lot of commentators, if you look in uh, commentaries, even pastors, theologians will say, we think this guy was planted there, like he was planted in the congregation because of verse two, the Pharisees were there and they wanted to see if Jesus was going to heal this man on the Sabbath and break their laws of the Sabbath. Do you think Jesus cared if this man was a plant? No, he didn't. Uh, You think he cared if this was a trap? Or not, man, we know the heart of Christ. And in two chapters, now going to the third one, we've seen the heart of Christ. Even last week, he tells those uh, Pharisees that were criticizing him eating with sinners. He says, sick people don't need, uh, uh, or sick people are the ones who need a doctor. Whole people do not. And so I'm sure as Jesus sees this man uh, in this condition, uh, his heart, Jesus Christ's heart is this. I have come into this world to destroy sin, to destroy the effects of sin, which does include sickness, and um, uh, to make all things new, to to give new life, to restore life, to give eternal life. And we're going to look at verses uh, two through four in a second, but I want to jump really down to verse three and see what Jesus does. So he sees this man with a withered hand, and what does he tell him to do in verse three? Jesus tells that man, stand up. I don't know. Have you ever been in a church where they made you do that? Like you were just visiting? And they're like, all visitors, please stand. I've been in a few. I was like, thank you very much. I'd rather not, right? But Jesus tells this man to stand. And then, then notice what he does at the end of verse five. He says, stretch forth your hand. Stretch forth your hand. And he stretched it out, the man did. And his hand was restored whole like the other. Man, when we see the power of Jesus over the physical world, over we've already seen him heal sick people and do so many other things. A man lowered on a bed and, and raised his mother-in-law up off a, a sick bed. And now he comes to this man. No touching, no doctoring, no medicine. He simply commands, hey, stand up and stretch forth your hand. And what happens? Man's hand is healed. 
There was no work there. Jesus just, that's the omniscience and wisdom of God. Oh, you want to trap me? All right, I'll make sure that there's no work done. I'm not even touching. I'm not, stand up and stretch forth your hand. There's a guy doing this. Not really any work. All right. Um, but I want you to notice something. We're going to see this as we go throughout the Gospel of Mark. We've probably already seen it. But here's a very good example of what saving faith is. Like a faith that saves you, gives you eternal life when you come to trust Jesus as Savior. Because there's a couple of components you always see. We always see this, whether it's later on when Jesus heals the lepers, you know, the, the ten lepers, and nine, nine went and just left, and one came back. We see it there. We see it so many times. We even see it here. Saving faith. A faith that gets to see God's miraculous work, that gets to experience God's restorative work in uh, saving you from your sins and giving you new life. Saving faith always has at least these two components. Sometimes there's a third one. We're going to see that later. But it always has these two components. Saving faith always admits a need. Do you think that that guy had a hard time admitting that he had a need? Man, it was right there. And every day he woke up, that withered hand was there. He had a need. Now, if Luke is right, and it was his right hand, no offense to any lefties here, but the majority of people are right-handed, right? So do you think it affected his work? Yeah, I'm sure it affected his work. Do you think people made fun of him? It's a little kid. I don't know if he had it then. Do you think he was embarrassed by it? He ought not be, but you know how people are in society. He admitted he had a need, though. And saving faith always does this. It always responds in obedience. You know, I think he, he probably was a little embarrassed when Jesus said, stand up. But he did it. And then Jesus asked him to do something else. He said, stretch forth your hand. <laughs> you kidding me? Like in front of this whole congregation? You want to expose the thing that I'm a little embarrassed by or I might be ashamed of? Well, Jesus commanded him to stretch forth his hand to make public his need. And in faith, he obeyed Jesus. And what happened? He was healed. He was healed. He stood up and he said, I'm going to obey. And all of a sudden, that hand became just like his other hand. By grace through faith, he was restored. He was made new. Because his faith obeyed Jesus Christ. Always does that. Always admits a need. Because if you don't have that kind of humility, um, you're not going to have faith. If you don't see a need, if you don't, oh man, I need you to fix something, Jesus. He stands up. He stretches forth his hand. God, this is my prayer. God, help every single person here, every single person watching. Uh, help me. This is my prayer to have that kind of humility. Where when I got a need... I'm not going to hide it anymore. I'm going to lay it before the one who can actually fix the problem. Not hide it. Not be embarrassed by it. But go to the one who, who died for it, as we sang. Whose blood can cleanse me from it. Who can make everything new. I'm going to present it to Jesus. The one who can actually change me. Can fix the problem. It wasn't just this man whose hand was restored. But there's also a mandate restored. All right, the mandate of the Sabbath, Exodus 28, one of the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20, verse 8, what does it say? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we saw last week how these Pharisees, these religious people, had taken what was a gift from God and turned it into a grief. They had taken what was a blessing for you and I in that commandment and turned it into a burden, putting 39 extra human regulations on it, never one that Jesus uh, put on there. But this is what they had done. And we see here in today's text that it don't look like they got the message from the cornfield last week. That doesn't. Because uh, look what they're doing right there. 
All right, we, we know that they took one simple command from God to honor the Sabbath day, to remember it, keep it holy, and they added these 39 other human regulations. Jesus talked about that last week. At the very end of, verse, uh, of chapter 2, verse 28, Jesus says, and if, if that doesn't convince you, look, you cannot rule the Sabbath. Uh, the ruler of the Sabbath cannot be ruled by it. I'm the creator of it. I'm the one who, who gave it to you, so I'm not constrained by it. But here he's, um, he's, he's interacting with these fellows. And let's look at verse 2. It says, and they watched him. The Pharisees watched him. Whether he'd heal that man on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. Oh, maybe they planted that man. Maybe that's right. Maybe they did. But if so, do you see a contrast there? Do you see a total difference in concern and compassion between them and Jesus? Jesus sees this man with a hand. He's concerned. He's compassionate. He wants to heal him. What are they doing with this guy if, if they did, in fact, plant him there? Man, I just want to use him. I can't do anything for you, so I'm going to use you to get at Jesus. I, I don't know whether he was a plant or this was a trap designed by them or not, but we, we do know why they were there because verse 2 says why they were there. Why were these guys in church? They wanted to catch Jesus, that they wanted to accuse him. The, the word there has got very strong legal overtones. It wasn't just like, ah, oh, I saw what you did. No, it means like I'm going to bring criminal charges to you and, and breaking the Sabbath. And that day, it was a, it was a death penalty. That's what you're, it's a capital offense if you did that. Even if you broke their rules, because Jesus didn't break any of them, but they were trying to get him to break one of theirs. So why were they in church? What was on their mind during church. Was it on worshiping God? I don't think so. It was on watching and watching with an evil intent that they might accuse him. Let's go back to the beginning. That's what Jesus does. Exodus 28. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does that mean? Remember. It means have a special regard for the Sabbath day, which this is our Sabbath, all right, since Christ rose on the Sunday, that's why Christians worship on Sunday rather than Saturday. So he says, have a special regard for this day to keep it holy. What does that mean? To keep it special, set apart. That's what it means. This is what we're to do. Does that seem pretty simple and straightforward? I think so. We just talked about it. All right, so why did they complicate it? And one of those 39 different complications, different caveats uh, for obeying this command that the Pharisees put on there is like, look, if you want to heal people, you can, but only in life-threatening situations. It has to be a life-threatening emergency. Then you can heal them on the Sabbath. Hmm, this one probably doesn't fit the bill, or does it? Now, look at the interesting words of Jesus Christ in his reply in verse 4. He questions them. That's how he answers them. He gives them a question. Verse 4. He says to them, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? I mean, what's the whole point here? And by implication, the answer is to do good. That's what the whole intent and purpose is. And he says, is it uh, better to save life or to kill? Nobody's talking about killing someone here, right? I mean, it's a withered hand. It's not like he's having a stroke or anything. But Jesus uses some really interesting uh, word there. And we have the same word life, means life in English. And in and, and, uh, Greek here, there's two words, zoe, which means life. Like uh, that's where we get the zoology, zoo type of thing uh, for. But there's also another one called uh, psychin, and it's talking about your, your soul. And that's actually what Jesus says here. He's like, is it better to, to save souls or to kill? And I think what Jesus is trying to tell us there is that, look, this guy's withered hand, it's been an obstacle in his life. 
to receiving the gospel. It's been an obstacle in his life for him it's coming to, to trust in the promised Messiah who's now here. Uh, it's, it's been an obstacle, so I'm, I'm going to do this because I want him to trust me as Savior. I'm going to take away that obstacle. That was the purpose of Jesus' miracles so many times when he's, when he's performing them. It wasn't just to help you out in this life. He's doing it so that you might trust him for eternal life. Save souls. That's what Jesus is saying here. And isn't that what we're here for? I mean, literally, isn't that what you and I are in church for? We're not here to watch like Pharisees and try to trap Jesus. We're here to save souls. That's what we are the church for. Not just what we're here for, not just what we're in church for, but what we are the church for. That's the greatest gift of the church, isn't it? I mean, I love it when somebody comes to know Christ as Savior here on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Awana, something like that. But as his church, that is what, there's no greater blessing as his church body a Monday through Saturday than to go and share the gospel and see souls saved. That's why Jesus came for this man with a withered hand, and that's why Jesus came for you and I. So my question for you this morning is, are you watching when you come to church? Are you watching or are you worshiping? What's your heart? Is your heart one trying to trap Jesus or looking around on people with condemnation, a cynical view? Or is your heart one to come and trust Jesus and worship Jesus? Verse 6 tells us that the Pharisees, the Pharisees went forth and straightway they took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. This is one of the most interesting things that I don't say I've learned. I think I knew it before. I'm just really aware of it in 2020, right? The, this chaotic mess that we've been in socially, politically, with all that's going on is this. And we see it here. <laughs> we see it here in verse 6. <clears throat> when it comes to the rejection of Jesus or being against Jesus, you see strange alliances, don't you? That's what we see here. The Pharisees legalistic, super religious, won't even, you don't want to associate with sinners, but now they're hanging out with Herodians. Do you know who the Herodians were? They were people that supported King Herod. King Herod wasn't even a Jew. He was, he was put over Israel as king by, by the Greeks, by the Romans, and, and they, the, the Herodians hated the Pharisees. The Pharisees hated the Herodians because they were like, you're traitors to Israel. You're not even religious. You don't even worship God. You don't care about God. And look at these two come together to do what? Try to destroy Jesus Christ. Try to destroy him. Do we see that nowadays? Man, I see it all the time. People who are political view over here and political view over here, totally opposite. You hate each other most of the time, but you're going to join together to be against Jesus Christ, to be against his word, to be against his church, to do whatever you can to, to get in the way and disrupt and, and, and destroy. Even people who might claim the name of Jesus Christ or claim to be religious like these Pharisees. Yeah, we see that. That's why we read Psalm 2 this morning. Why do the heathen rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing like they can come up against the sovereign king, Jesus? It's stupid. That's what Psalm 2 says. It's ridiculous. He's the creator of the universe. He's the sovereign king. We're going to see that in a moment. We're going to see more aspects of his power. But do we see that in the world today? People joining forces, even if they hate each other, just to come against Jesus Christ? I think so. Look, I pray that you're not a part of that in any format. Like you don't support it in what you watch or in what you value. And these two groups who hate each other, ready at the very beginning, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we're in chapter 3 here, and they're already, according to verse 6, seeking how they might destroy him. First time we hear in Mark's gospel about Jesus being killed. But you know what? Their plan, 
not outside of God's plan, is it? It's not. It's actually part of God's plan. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ that we sang about this morning, that was not an accident that just happened and God's like, oh no, they killed the Messiah. No, it was the plan. It was the purpose of God. It's the love of God uh, displayed for you and I in Jesus Christ to save us from the penalty of sins, to, to save us from his power in our lives. The straight way to the cross the straight way to Calvary, it did not begin in verse 6 when the Herodians and the Pharisees are like, <laughs> let's kill Jesus. It didn't. I've heard pastors and theologians say the, the road to Calvary began in Bethlehem. Didn't it? We sing about that at Christmas. Born to die upon Calvary. We sing songs about that little baby in the manger and what would happen one day. Mary, did you know? Things like that. But actually it began a long time before that. Didn't it? Listen to these verses. Acts 2, 23, when Peter's preaching at Pentecost, he tells those people, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Shows everybody involved in the death of Jesus Christ. Who killed them? Roman soldiers nailed him to the cross. Why did they do it? You crucified him by the hands of lawless men. But who was in charge of the whole thing? according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 1 Timothy 1.9, Paul tells that young pastor Timothy, he says, God saved us. He called us to live a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but according to his own purpose and grace, his purpose and grace. That grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's what it says. Not an accident, not a plan from the Herodians and the Pharisees. 1 Peter 1.18.20, we were redeemed with precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and spot, who was foreordained before the foundation of the world to be who he was going to be, do what he was going to do. Isaiah 53.10. This one's tough for me. It's a tough passage. A prophecy about Jesus Christ in Isaiah. It says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Seems crazy, doesn't it? God bruising God. God the Father bruising God. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin on that cross, then he shall see his seed. Who's his seed? Me and you, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. That's why God did it. God's love for us. That's why it, he can use words like, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, because he loved you and I so much that he was willing to do that. That God was willing to crush God. And Herodians and Pharisees aren't the ones who did it. They weren't in control. Who was in control? Sovereign God or sovereign king. We see Jesus' power over the spiritual world in verses 7 through 12. First of all, a presentation of the kingdom. Okay, so here, for three weeks now, we've seen the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's really been this, to preach. That was his primary thing. Yes, he did miracles. The miracles were there to reinforce his message. The miracles are spectacular. They get our attention, don't they? But they're supposed to point to his message, to point to the gospel. And this is what he said. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. I'm presenting it to you. Repent and believe the gospel and you'll receive it. Well, some did. Many didn't. But that's what he was preaching. That's what was primary. That's what would transform people. Yeah, the healing, great. Give me relief now. But the whole point of Jesus' healing was to open up their hearts for the spiritual healing that needed to occur so that they would trust him as Savior. That was the most important thing. Verse 7, after 
the worship service at the synagogue, look what happens. After the miraculous healing of that, that man with the withered hand, look what happens. It says, Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. I kind of joked about this in the first service because it's Labor Day, right? Last weekend. And we we're missing a lot of our people because they withdrew themselves to the sea for one last weekend, right? I'm glad they're with family on vacation. Um, but they, Jesus is going, he doesn't get any rest. <laughs> it doesn't turn out to be a vacation for Jesus. Look what happened. He, he takes his disciples out there. And what happens? Verse 7, a great multitude from Galilee followed him. That's where Capernaum was right there. It's the hometown. But also from Judea. Wow, that's down by Jerusalem. And where else? Uh, from Jerusalem. And from Idumea, that's Edom. That's on the south uh, east side there, the desert area. Uh, and, and also from uh, beyond Jordan. So where Jordan, the nation of Jordan is, east of Israel today. And where else? Tyre and Sidon. We're now up in Lebanon. People are coming from everywhere. (laughs) Why? Isn't that a great thing? Isn't that a good thing? People are coming from everywhere. Why are they coming? Jesus is offering the kingdom to all of his people from everywhere. But why are they coming? Well, it says at the end of verse 8. Because they had heard what great things he did. That's why they were coming. Now, there's a positive and a negative thing there. All right, here's the positive part. And we need to be doing this, that we can learn that our testimony of what Jesus Christ has done for us, not just in saving us, but I mean, all the time, we should be giving people testimony of what God has done for us. But it's a powerful method in helping draw other people to him. Tell people what Jesus has done for you. It's a powerful, that's a positive side. The the negative side is, is kind of this. Look, we can't control what they do with Jesus once we show them, once we tell them, once they hear, once they see him, through our testimony, we really can't do anything. And these people, they took the negative side. They made the negative choice. All right, look at verse 10. Why did they come? Because he had healed many. Because <laughs> he had healed many. Verse 8 said they came because they heard what great things he has done. These two verses, they communicate to us the main reason that they were coming to see Jesus. All this multitude from all over, yeah, they are coming to Jesus, um, but their interest was in the temporal, physical miracles of Jesus. It's important, but it wasn't in the eternal spiritual message of Jesus. The thing that could actually do them the most good for eternity, they weren't all that interested in. We're going to see that pattern all the way through this gospel. It's in Mark, or it's in Matthew, it's in Luke, it's in John. They're wowed by miracles. Even his teaching at first draws them. Never heard teaching like that. But then when he starts preaching hard things, asking them to do hard things, you see him drift away, back up, numbers drop. He's not welcomed as much. He's presenting them the kingdom. Um, And eventually they reject it. It's sad, really. People concern more about what Jesus can do for you here and now than then and there. And we're going to see them continue to reject the kingdom that he's presented. Now, even that, too, is not outside God's plan. He actually said that was going to happen. It's a good thing. You and I are now part of this kingdom because they rejected it then. Do you know what's another beautiful thing? According to God's word in Revelation, He's going to come again. He's going to offer it to his people, Israel, again. And you know what they're going to do this time? There's going to be a, a large majority of them who accept it. Aren't you glad for God of second chances? Isn't that who he's been for you? If he's been for me, it's second, third, fourth, 8,000 chances. 
That's who our merciful Savior is. The power of the king now, verses 11 12. The power of King Jesus wasn't just restricted to healing people with withered hands or getting his mother-in-law off a sickbed or lepers or men coming down who are lame. Uh, No, in in that first synagogue service, if you remember, Jesus cast a demon out of that man that was disrupting the service. And we see here in verse 11, it says there was in that great multitude, in that great multitude, there were unclean spirits. All right, so all these people come from all over to, yeah, hear what Jesus says, but mostly to see him do wonders and works. And there's a lot of them there that were afflicted by unclean spirits. That means demons possessing them. Now, that can happen to somebody who's a believer. The demon can't. You don't need to be scared about that. If you trust Christ as Savior, you've got the Holy Spirit living in you. There's no room for anybody else. You can be oppressed by demonic forces. We are. We're going to see that verse in a second. But you cannot be possessed. These people hadn't trusted in the Messiah yet. And they are, they're literally afflicted uh, and dwelt by unclean spirits. What were those spirits doing there? My guess is they're doing what Satan likes to do distract and disrupt. Isn't that what they're doing? He's trying to preach to these people. He's, he's, that's a group, big group. They're all just there for the miracles, but he's trying to preach. He even tells them, hey, I need a boat back here in case they get crazy and I have to jump in the boat and bug out. All right. But uh, they're trying to disrupt things. They're trying to distract people from hearing the preaching of Jesus so that their life might be transformed by his message. When Jesus came on the scene, do you understand this? There had been 400 years of silence from Malachi to Jesus, silence. No prophets, few preachers, very tiny remnant, very tiny remnant of faithful people looking for the Messiah. Three kings in a different land, you know, Elizabeth, Zacharias, Anna. We, most people we read about in Luke are excited when the Savior is born. Very few people. It was a time when these unclean spirits, they had free reign. They had free reign um, to afflict people. But now that time was done, and they're not very happy about it. Do you see how they were in that first synagogue? Now, now they're out here in this outdoor worship service, and they're making all kinds of racket and disrupting. Now, they, they knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was the king. They knew their time was short. They knew that it was but a few years before he would die on the cross, and that their leader, Satan, his head would be crushed by Jesus Christ on that cross. And just like before, he tells them to stop, peak, stop speaking, uh, stop disrupting. He, they wanted to weaken uh, the gospel message with chaos and confusion. And Jesus says this, I want my message is only to be uh, heard through my words and through my works. Look, that's the message that you and I are to give to people. That's where the power of the king is, is in his word. That's the word that created the universe. And in his works. That's what we need to show people. Look, we live in a world where there is still demonic activity. It's going to be that way until Christ returns at the very end, the end of Revelation, when he puts all things under his feet. We're not going to have to worry about that anymore. I can't wait for that time. Do we face demonic problems today? We do. I think our culture is, that's evidence of it right now. That's what Paul told us. He's like, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, 12. No, you wrestle against uh, principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual forces and high places. That's what we're wrestling. We are not wrestling against Democrats. And if you're a Democrat, we're not wrestling against Republicans. We're not wrestling against black and white, male and female. We're not. Do you know who we're wrestling against? Demonic forces. Demonic forces. 
And we got to understand that we can love the people, but we don't need to be loving the demonic forces that are causing them to do this. We got to fight it. Well, how do we fight it? Same Ephesians 6. How do we fight it? Armor of God. We take the helmet of our salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet shod with the gospel of peace. We take the sword. Are you taking the sword? Does the sword go with you everywhere? Does the sword stay at home? You take the sword of the Spirit and take prayer. We like to leave that one out. That's the other offensive weapon he mentions there in Ephesians 6. That's how we fight these demonic forces. Is it scary to think that you're fighting somebody that you can't even see? This is for me. I mean, I don't want to ever really come in contact with a demon. I don't. But is it hopeless? Not with a king. It's not hopeless with the king. It's not with the power of the king. Where is that power? It's in his word. It's in his works. God, help us rely on that. We're going to sing an invitation song here in a minute. That's where courage and victory lie. That's where we need to arm ourselves with the same way Jesus did in his word and his works. We're going to sing, am I a soldier of the cross? If there's someone watching this morning or someone here may never trusted Christ the Savior, you know what? You, you need restoration? Is he asking you this morning to stand up? I'm not going to ask you to stand up, but allegorically, to stand up and go right before Jesus and go, this is what I need you to fix. What is it? What do you need him to fix this morning? Quit hiding it. He already knows about it. Just give it to him. Stand up. Hold it forth. And say, I need to receive you as Savior. Christian, sometimes we do the same thing. That's how we came to Christ. That's how we're saved. But it's also how we continue in Christ. Why do we hide stuff? Why do we pull stuff back and say, well, I can handle this. No, give it to Jesus this morning. It might be church. What's your attitude in church? What's your attitude in worship? Is it cynical? Is it trying to catch somebody, watch? Or is it there? I'm, I'm here to worship. And not just on this day, but I'm going to devote every day. Is Jesus king of your life? He's got the power to defeat anything. His word and his works. Do you feel like you're wrestling sometimes? That's a good thing. It means you're in the battle. We're called to be in the battle. But nothing can stand against him. Do you realize that? Maybe um, you're like, I'm fine. I'm really worried about my son or daughter. I'm really worried about my grandkids. I'm worried about my husband. I'm worried about my parents. I'm worried about my best friend because they're in a mess right now. They fall into these lies. Will you say, Lord, your word, your works, deliver them. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do this morning is pray for them. I'm going to ask Tommy to come. We're going to sing. It's a short little hymn. We'll sing all the verses because it's powerful. Am I a soldier of the cross? Ask yourself that. And then commit to be that this morning.